This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, after fear and raging. When Toy Derricotte was a little girl, her father was the only one who could come near her when she'd fallen. And while he dabbed her leg with iodine, he would make little jokes to distract her. But he was abusive too. And he used to beat her with a belt for having that look on her face. Or at the dinner table, he'd lift her up by her hair when she was slow in cleaning her plate. Poetry became her way of dealing with things, with painful memories, and with the pain of racism, loneliness, depression. But her latest poems feel different. She came out with a new and selected collection earlier this year. The book is titled I, as in me, in quotation marks. And what makes these new poems so different is probably best to hear for yourself. Here's Toy Derricot with a short poem from I. 31. Yeah, it's a, it's a little poem. Yeah. A nap. <clears throat> Alone in my house, during a rainstorm, I open the back door so that the sound comes in and rain makes a little puddle inside the screen. It is early afternoon, though dark. I lie on the bed and put my papers down beside me. I am light as if there were no blame or guilt. Light inside, heavy out. Each part of me balanced, supported. I love how how small this moment is, how simple. Yes, and um, it is very different from the earlier poems and then it, that it's very much right here now in the moment yeah. rather than thinking about the past and writing through the past and finding meaning in the past, mm-hmm. and that kind of poem. Yeah. You've been writing poetry for over 60 years. What about now has made you feel like uh, this was the time for, for such a book? Yeah, it's almost like a capstone of all of your writing. That is true. And as I came closer to putting the book together, Mm. I realized uh, how much it showed the growth and changes through my life as a poet and how different the toy at uh, in her late 70s is from the one that was writing at 18, 19, 20. You know, in fact, I started writing a poem actually right before Virginia came Mm. about what it is that balances a line. What, how were my lines balanced uh, 40 years ago? It's so fascinating how when I write a poem, how shall I say, it's, there's always a tension. That's the kind of thing that gives you a form. It's not a traditional form, but yeah. you're knocking up against things and certain things are allowing you to move and certain things are telling you not to move. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, just like a story has a narrative arc, in a poem there is a sort of friction or something that creates the heat of the poem. Yes, but uh, I noticed in the new book, there's a pantoum in the book, mm -hmm. and I found using form like that was sort of easy for me. And in my earlier poems, I couldn't quite get what I wanted to get into a poem using traditional form. And in fact, in some way, the poem itself was meant to resist mm. traditional forms. And do you feel that um, that resistance, was that the kind of rebellion that you had against all sorts of traditional forms that you didn't want to conform to? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Something in me knew that when I was reading the poems I read in grade school and high school and college that I wasn't reading any African-American poets. So there seemed to be something in me that was saying, okay, I love these guys, and yet this is a constraint that these white men own. That constraint is in some way an indication of a way I'm constrained. I, I'm meant to be held back or held down. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't consciously fighting this way, yeah. but it's almost like I wanted to do it better than they did it. I wanted to yeah. I, I wanted to show I was myself. Yeah. It's an internal sense of what belongs to you, what you're fighting, what you're comfortable with. So I think as I've gotten older, I'm just more relaxed about everything. And I just feel more a part of experience just sort of flowing uh, through me. And at an earlier age, I was fighting a lot of battles to make a poem. Mm -hmm. And a poem is, is hard to write. I mean, I'm still mm -hmm. fighting that way, but um, the internal struggle is not what it used to be. The The fighting is more with, um, oh, I shouldn't say that, because what I'm <laughs> going to write tomorrow is, is probably going to be <laughs> just as hard as what I wrote 20 years ago. But anyway, it yeah. just feels like I, I know what I'm doing now, and I'm more mm -hmm. on my side. I'd like to go back to that first, um, those first moments with Kavi Khanum. Uh, you started 23 years ago, you and Cornelius Edie. What was that very first workshop like? Well, you know, first of all, I, I need to say that there wasn't one person who had an idea and then followed through on that and then made an institution. I didn't want to bring anybody else in. I wanted to, you know, do it myself. Uh, but um, I somehow just couldn't seem to pull it off on my own. Uh, 
And uh, one year, I think it was 1994, Cornelius and his wife Sarah and my husband and I vacationed together on the island of Capri. Uh And during that time, you know, I asked Cornelius, I explained about having a workshop retreat for African-American poets and asked him, you know, if he wanted to do it. And he said, yeah, sure. And this was the way Kavi Khanna began as a bridge between people who trusted each other and the evolution of it. As soon as Cornelius and, and Sarah agreed to be, you know, for us to be a team, um, everything started just falling in place. I said, oh, I have a friend, you know, Father Gargani. He's got a monastery on the Hudson River, and he told me, if you ever do this, come on up and use the monastery. So we called him right away from Italy, and he said, yeah, come use the monastery next year. We put advertisements in some of the poetry magazines. We got 68 applications. We chose uh, 20 people. I called uh, Elizabeth Alexander and said, would you teach for free? So this is (laughs) how I'm telling you. It it evolved because it's almost like it wanted to happen. It needed to happen so badly that things just supported it. And uh, so Elizabeth taught that next year for free. Afa Weaver taught for free. And we decided not to charge tuition. People mm. paid the establishment. They had to pay a certain you know, amount a night. But we never yeah. um, charged tuition for people because mm-hmm. we wanted people to be able to come just on the basis of their poetry. And that's how we wanted to choose applications. But what happened is um, that that opening night, we sat up the chairs in a circle, and then we asked, why are you here? How did you get here? I'm telling you, every year people just, it's as if they their whole souls just pour out, you know. There's so much to say about what it means to to look around the room and see 50 other black African-American poets who are beautiful. It's a way yeah. of seeing yourself in a new way, to see yourself as part of this brilliant, powerful uh, thing. Uh, it's reimagining who you are. I can imagine that at Cave Canem that it's not always... How do you say that? Sunshine and roses? You know that... Oh, yeah. Because a poem is so much um, a manifestation of of friction. Do you remember a moment where you saw that friction play out? I mean, when we say it's a safe space, for me, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be happy and, you know, nobody's going to have a problem. 
It means your poems are safe. You can say what you need to say to, to write what you need to write. A lot of these people are, have been in spaces where their poems are not safe. They're either not understood or the reflection is that uh, <laughs> you're a black poet and you're doing a certain job or something. They, they mm. The people aren't able to really look at their poems clearly and help them you know, write these poems. This is a space where they're safe to trust each other and and that's what happens for people there they're they're they trust people and they get help to write the poems they need to write yeah but every year things happen one time mm -hmm. i remember there was a lot of probably drinking going on at the monastery <laughs> yeah. and um one evening, I went into one of the bathrooms, and I saw vomit in the sink. Sarah was outside of the bathroom, and I showed her, you know, what are we going to do? Mm. And she reached her hand in and cleared the drain. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is being there for one another. <laughs> That's how it is at Kavikana. Something always, always happens. <laughs> and somebody clears the drain. I'm not kidding. <laughs> that is some metaphor, Toy. <laughs> I know, it's not a pretty thing. <laughs> and, you know, we have to deal with things. I mean, the organization has to change. We have to, what it was uh, 23 years ago when you had 25 people, it's not the same now when you've got an office in New York mm. and over 450 fellows all over the country. Mm. and It's a whole different <laughs> thing yeah. and but so far it just seems that every change something comes in and swoops in under Kavikanam and <laughs> and carries it to the next place You have a deep connection to poets who write in the confessional mode. Um, mm. the poets like Sylvia Plath, Anne Sexton, Robert Lowell. Um, how did that connection start? I recall, uh, you know, Sylvia Plath's poem, Daddy. Mm. When I first heard that poem, I guess I was around 27, and that was the first time I took a poetry class in New York. I had moved away from my family, and... Um, And when I read Daddy by Sylvia Plath, I thought, oh, my God, this is so amazing. You can take your anger and create something that felt equal to uh, whatever I was holding in terms of the power in the expression. And also for it to be uh, beautiful in some way, not to be ugly, as I feared what was mm -hmm. inside me was ugly. Because, you know, my father's violence was very, not so beautiful. And yeah. um, for me, to be angry was, I, I couldn't do it. I better not do it. I'd, I'd be killed, probably. So what to do with this terrible, destructive force? It felt destructive to me. I didn't, 
you know, I was going to be a nun when I was 18. I thought maybe I could do it with prayer, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought I could do it with sex. I got pregnant. Yeah. I had a kid. Mm. And that turned out to be not a very happy marriage. Um, and, uh, you know, I ended up, um, you know, being fortunate enough, I married my second husband and we moved to New York. And I was in a community where I could... Um, begin to talk about things I hadn't been able to talk about in my hometown because I had for years just kept everything, you know, hidden. And mm -hmm. in fact, uh, when I was 18, my father burned everything I had ever written. Uh, when I left home, he, he destroyed it all. Oh, wow. And then when I heard that poem, I thought, here's a way out. I, I had never mm -hmm. uh, been able to see a way out. But, you know, it's fascinating to me uh, because so many of those poets that I loved so much, you know, Lowell and Sexton and um, Berryman and, mm -hmm. um, you know, they killed themselves. Yeah. And so what I was doing felt very dangerous because I was suicidal. There were several times in my life when I really came close. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now I am on... Um, medication for mm -hmm. people who suffer from depression and I have been fine for many years but at that time you know it was very there were many many years when I was really uh, walking a thin line and I thought about I've, I still think about those poets that I love so much and what was the difference yeah why didn't I end up in this tragic way mm -hmm. that those poets did who revealed so much about their interior lives. Because, you know, I was writing mm -hmm. about class too, just the way Lowell was writing mm -hmm. about class and the ways his family failed him. But I, I was really, I think I needed community very badly. I think community meant a lot to me. I, I guess it was from... Yeah my connections in my childhood to people that showed me something about power and beauty and authority, maybe in the black community, maybe the music. Um, and it so happened as I developed as a poet, as I wrote about these ways I, I showed myself and found that uh, I was a part of another group of people who were doing the same kind of work. Um, I think some of that loneliness uh, was appeased in some way. Yeah, I'm wondering if um, being a part of a community gave you the courage to go further than, than anyone that I've ever read. You know, I think it was... I think it was... more a hope that got me 
there was some hope in me because I think maybe on some level there was such a desperation that there it created a hope. The hope is that um, that as 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 naked as we can be as human beings, we can see ourselves in another and and see our own beauty that 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 beauty is reflected back that in some way being naked in this way there's there's a mirror that comes up which is this mirror of acceptance or compassion it's certainly i i feel it in kavikanam because when i'm immersed in it mm. and i'm there and i just feel the joy and the wonder of it it's like oh this is heaven and one retreat there was this huge gold moon that shone right over the circle at the end of the you know we had our closing circle outside yeah. and there was this huge go you know this just shows everything is happening yeah. the universe is all in favor everything is on our side right now I would love to take it back to your father and the complexity of that relationship and um you you you've always in in all of your poetry been sensitive to his rage and his charm um the way he dragged you up the stairs by your hair or beat you with a belt but also how he took you to the movies or dressed your wounds um sometimes even after he'd beaten you and I'm wondering if you feel that that poetry, because of the way that it structures itself mm -hmm. around tension, mm -hmm. right, like an unresolvable conflict, mm -hmm. if that has made it possible for you to write so tenderly about your violent dad... It's a really, I think that's a really profound point. You know, when you have, we could go back to Kavi Kanam and think about the brutality of that history and the effect it's had on people over time, mm. how the family holds these um, memories uh, for generations and works through what isn't dealt with in one generation, how it's dealt with in other ways. Uh, and so thinking of poetry as a way to hold experience, not to bury it, not to reject it, but to find a way to live with it and perhaps to even 
see experience in a way that's not harmful to myself, not rageful. Um, I think this has been part of the work, you know, how to do something good with um, some things that are not so good. Yeah. I was wondering if you could read your poem, My Father in Old Age. It's on page 30. Uh, yeah. Okay. My Father in Old Age. My father enjoyed such innocent pleasures at the end, his face unguarded as a three-year-old's, bacon with tomato on a slice of thickly buttered toast. He'd look up and make sounds from deep in his belly. Mmm, mmm, he'd say, <laughs> extending it, holding on to the mmms, then letting them go with a quick staccato. When my father was young, no matter how hard he beat me, his face never unclinched itself. His hardest work never helped him. Then, at the end, an unrehearsed joy. Tori Derricott is the prize-winning author of many poetry collections, such as Natural Birth, Captivity, Tender, and her latest, I. She also wrote a poetic memoir, The Undertaker's Daughter, and a diaristic essay on race, The Black Notebook. She's the co-founder of Kave Kanem, the influential workshop for Black poets, with fellows such as Terence Hayes, Daimba Jess, Jericho Brown, Ross Gay, Morgan Parker, Patricia Smith, and many others. She served as a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets and is Professor Emerita at the University of Pittsburgh. You can find more on Toy Derricotte and Kaveh Kanem on the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>